Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Lake Baldwin Church. This is an incredible day. We, uh, we've been dreaming about it. We've been praying about it. And it's finally here. And we're so excited to be here. Well, this morning, I've got a statistic for you I wanted to throw out. You probably already know this. But the Bible is the best-selling book of all history, okay? But you may not know this. The best-selling book series of all history is the Harry Potter book series, right? Some of you are probably hoping it was Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia, but it's not. It's Harry Potter. Um, So I'm going to start there with Harry Potter. And that story, that book series, starts out with the main character, Harry Potter, Uh, he's living with his abusive aunt and uncle and cousin, the Dursleys. Uh, They're abusive in so many ways. He's living, you know, he doesn't have his own room. He's living underneath the stairs in this little tiny spot, no bigger than, you know, a small bed, and he can't even stand up. And he's living there thinking that he has been orphaned, that his mom and dad have been killed in a car accident. Well, on his... 11th birthday, you may know the story, he's visited by a gentle half-giant whose name is Hagrid, Rubius Hagrid. And Hagrid brings with him an invitation to the Hogwarts school, and he also brings this good news. Harry, your mom and your dad were wizards, and guess what? You are a wizard also. And you know what? That news changes everything for Harry Potter, changes everything. He has a new identity now. He has new obligations. He begins to feel differently and be motivated differently. Uh, He's brought into a brand new community. He finds out he has an inheritance he didn't know he had. He's got a new purpose and a new destiny to go to this school and to learn how to develop and wield this new power that he has. Um, So, in a very similar way, very similar way, but more profound, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changes everything for those who receive him by faith. And we're going to unpack this idea in the scripture today. But before we do that, we've got to define this word gospel. Gospel. Well, in uh, the Greek, that word is euangelion. Euangelion, it simply means good news. Good news like the news that Harry Potter got. But Paul is using it in a specific way. He is talking about some kind of specific good news. And what is that good news? It's the good news of Jesus. It's the good news of Jesus. And it is this, that God himself entered human history at a particular place, at a particular time, to a particular people for the very purpose of restoring the relationship between God and man. And he does this by living the perfect life, dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He rises again from the dead. We celebrated that last week, showing that he has overcome death, and now he has ascended at the right hand of the Father, where he is waiting for God to put everything underneath his feet. That's the good news that we're talking about this morning. So when I use the word gospel, that is the good news I'm talking about. And as we look at this passage, I want to unpack three aspects of the gospel, three aspects. And the first is this, that the gospel obliges all followers of Christ. It obliges all followers of Christ. Secondly, that the gospel, it changes our emotions and our motivations. And then lastly, we're going to look at how the gospel arms us with the greatest power needed on earth today. Okay, those three points, pretty simple. We're going to jump right into that first point. The gospel obliges all followers of Christ, and we see that in verse 14 where Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And some of you might be saying, Brian, you, you use the word obligation and good news in the same sentence, and those don't usually go together for me. Um, if you're a parent, you're probably hearing your kids in the background in your mind saying, do we have to go to fill in the blank, right? Well, that's how we use that word obligation in our modern culture, right? It's something we're responsible for, committed to, uh, something that we are are morally bound to do, okay? But the word here is ophelates in the Greek, and it has a more narrower definition. What it means is it means to be in debt, to owe something to someone else, okay? And some of the translations actually use the word debtor, debtor, okay? I want to give you a couple illustrations of how you can be in debt, and of course, the first one you're going to know right away. Suppose... You loan me a million dollars. I'm going to be doing the happy dance uh, until the fact I realize I have to pay that back. So I'm in debt to you until I uh, discharge that million dollars back to you. But, but follow me on this one, this second example. Now, your friend has a million dollars for you, okay? He gives that million dollars to me. And so until I discharge that million dollars to you, I am in debt to you. Okay, do you guys follow that? Nod your head, yep. Okay, so this is how Paul is using the word ophelates, under obligation. 
He has been given something to give to others. He's in debt to others because he's been given something. And what is that something? It's the good news. It's the gospel, okay? So he's not in debt to others because they gave him something. He's in debt because God has given him the gospel to give to other people, okay? That's how it works. Now, it says in our scripture that he is under obligation to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And what does that mean? Well, the Greeks are those who are Greek-speaking. They're in the culture of the Greeks of the day. And the barbarians are basically everyone else. Everyone else is a barbarian, okay? And the, and the wise and the foolish, those are the educated and the uneducated. So what Paul is basically saying is I have a debt to repay to basically all cultures and all classes of people, basically to everyone, okay? So because the gospel is for everyone, the church should be for everyone. The church should be for everyone. Everyone ought to be welcome in the church. And so whether you're a homeless person or whether you're uber rich, should feel welcome in the church, whether you're covered with tattoos or not, right? Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, the church is for everyone because the gospel is for everyone. And no matter how you want to divide up society, whatever lines you want to draw in society, those lines should be obliterated in the church of Jesus because the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Well, our scripture this morning is clearly teaching that Paul is under obligation. The question arises, what about us? Have we been given something, if we are in Christ, have we been given something to give to others? And I want you to hear the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so you see, if you are in Christ this morning, you have the light of Christ in you. You have the light of the good news in you. And that light is meant to be on display. It's not meant to be put under a basket Jesus says it's supposed to be put on a stand. You're like a lighthouse. You're like a beacon. You're the light of the world, okay? Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose you have been given all of the free movies and popcorn and snacks down at the local theater uh, for you and for your family, your friends, anybody you want you can invite. Would you keep all of that to yourself? Of course not. You would not do that. I mean, you would begin inviting your family, your friend. You'd probably make new friends, you know, come and help me eat as much as I can, right, and enjoy this movie. But church, I want to tell you that we have something so much greater than movies and popcorn to give out. We have the very words of life, words that bring life to people, right? We have the greatest cure for, we've been hit by a pandemic now, but there is a greater pandemic that has hit planet Earth, and it's called sin, and we have the cure to that. We want to give that 
freely away. So we can look at this obligation, this debt to discharge uh, this way, but we can also look at it through the lens of stewardship. Stewardship. I think most of you guys get stewardship, right? I mean, if you're, you're gifted in handyman skills, you want to exercise that and use that to be a good steward. Um, if you are gifted in working with two- and three-year-olds, I'm going to say, God bless you. You are great people. You should see Heather Shiflet, right? But you ought to be serving to be a good steward of that. Well, if you're in Christ this morning, think of all the things that God has given you. He's given you time and money and capabilities, all these things. But the greatest thing he has entrusted you with is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And is it sitting idle in your life, or are you stewarding it for his glory? I want to give you three uh, applications, practical things that you can take away right now. Hey, I want to get started in this sharing the gospel. What, what can I do with that? Three, three ways. Get engaged, get inviting, and get equipped, okay? Get engaged. By that I mean get engaged with people who have yet to embrace this good news and people who may not have already heard the good news. Invest in the lives of those people around you, whether it's family or neighbors or coworkers. And if you do that, it's going to lead you to step number two. It's going to give you opportunities to get inviting. Get inviting. You can invite them into your home. You can invite them to church. You can invite them to your community group. Uh, you guys do this thing called beer with dead guys. You can invite them to that. All of these venues give them the opportunity to hear aspects of the gospel. It's an easy thing to do. So you can, you can get inviting. So get engaged, get inviting, and lastly, get equipped. Get equipped to share your faith. And I just want to point out one practical thing. There's a lot of things you can do here. One practical thing you can do, you may not know this, on your website, there's a button at the top that says classes. If you go there, there's a series of classes, Discover Grace 1 and Discover Grace 2. In Discover Grace 1, there's a module called Telling God's Story. And I, think, I looked at it, it's a fantastic way to get started with engaging the gospel with other people. So I want to encourage you to look at that. And begin to think about this as we unpack the other two aspects of the gospel. And so the second one is the gospel changes our emotions and our motivations. Okay, you see in the scripture, in verses 15 and 16, this is what Paul says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now this, this statement is 180 degrees opposite of the way Paul would have felt about the gospel before. Right? 180 degrees, a change in direction. He would not have been eager about the gospel before. Uh, remember who we're talking about. You may not know, okay? Uh, the apostle Paul, before he encountered the Lord, he was probably the worst persecutor of the church. He's the one that wanted to wipe out the good news. He was the one in Acts chapter 7 who was standing by while Stephen was being stoned and killed. And why was Stephen being stoned and killed? He was preaching this very same good news. 
And how ironic it is that this Paul now is proclaiming this very same news that he was trying to extinguish. He has had a change of heart. He's now eager about this gospel, and he's no longer ashamed, okay? Now, early on in my corporate career, one of my very first bosses, uh, he, he sat down with me and said, Brian, here's my uh, psychology of human motivation. And he boiled it down to two, two things. Uh, you're motivated, Brian, either by greed or by fear, okay? So imagine yourself as a young person in the workplace hearing that for the first time and <laughs> thinking about your boss. How is he thinking about me now? Um, well, shame, shame is a powerful motivator for us. It, 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 it makes us hide because we feel weak. And now would the, Paul, the Apostle Paul, would he have reason to be ashamed of being associated with Christ, uh, with being ashamed of this good news? And we would have to say, yes. Why is that? What, what comes with the gospel? Come, yeah, you can be outcast from your community. You can be ridiculed and laughed at. People throw stones at you. You can be thrown in prison, you can be martyred. And we know from the life of the Apostle Paul, all of those happened to him. So he had great reason to worry about the gospel and be ashamed of it. But he is declaring now something different. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And so what changed for Paul? Does he have some kind of new greed or fear motivation, a new one that's changing his mind? It's, it's nothing like that at all. It's simply this. Jesus had saved Paul's life. Jesus saved Paul's life. He saved him from being on the wrong side of history, you see. He saved him from his own self-righteousness, his self-justification. He saved him from eternal condemnation. And so Paul realized that he was unconditionally loved by the God of this universe, and it changed his emotions, it changed his very motivations. This is how he says it to his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says this, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and then the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And you can hear it in these words. This gospel, this good news is not something theoretical, not something abstract for Paul. This hit him in the heart. This is something highly personal to him because he realized when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, Jesus had every right to extinguish him from planet Earth, right? Because Paul was his enemy. But he says to Timothy, no, I didn't, I didn't get what I deserved. I got mercy. And beyond that, I received overflowing grace and love. And that's what changed his heart-level motivations. That's what made him eager. And so the question this morning is, has Jesus captivated your heart? Are you captivated by the beauty of Jesus, who he is, what he has done? 
Well, for me, when I think about this, this idea of emotions and how we should feel about Christ in the gospel, one of the most convicting passages of all of Scripture for me is found at the end of Jonah chapter 4. Um, I think most of you know about Jonah. You, you, you know that he was swallowed by a whale, right? But let me, let me recap a little bit more for you to take us up to the end of the story, okay? The Lord goes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I've got a message for the people of Nineveh. And this is the Assyrians, uh, who are not exactly on friendly terms with the Israelites. And so Jonah doesn't like this. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So what does he do? He tries to flee from God, okay? And by the way, this never works out. If you want to try to flee from God, it never works out. That's how he finds himself in the belly of a big fish. And as that probably would do to you and me, we would have a change of mind after a little while. Um, if we were conscious. And so he cries out to God, and God hears him, and then the fish spits him out, vomits him out onto the land. And then my imagination starts to carry away with things that are not in Scripture. I imagine Jonah covered with fish slime and fish guts, and he's got to clean himself off. He's got to compose himself because he's going to stand before his enemies. And so he does that, and he goes there, and he preaches, and guess what? They repent. And he's not very happy about that. Well, that takes us up to the end of the story. And here's where we want to focus in. He goes outside of the city, and here's what's happened. He sits down, and it's hot. And there's a, there's a heavy wind, and, he, and he's bothered, and he's getting scorched. And what does the Lord do? The Lord, by his grace, causes a plant to grow up next to him, and it gives him comfort, gives him shade, it gives him pleasure. Right? And the scripture says that Jonah is exceedingly glad okay that's great here's the twist the next day god appoints a worm and the worm goes and it destroys this plant and then what happens jonah is angry okay and that leads us up to the last two verses i want to read these to you and the lord said you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now, there's a lot that's going on here, but I want to focus in on the emotions. Remember I said that Jonah was exceedingly glad, and then he was angry. And God is basically saying to him, Jonah, your emotions reveal your heart level motivations. They reveal your heart. Because you see, you're so happy. You're over the top happy over something that's temporary. Something that's giving you comfort, pleasure even. And when it's taken away, you get all angry. But what about something eternal? What about the eternal souls of people? Does it even engage your emotions Jonah, and this is where, for me, it's so convicting, and it hits me right in the middle of the eyes. Are we more emotionally excited over things that don't last? A good meal, you know, going out to the movies, some new possession. Are we so over-the-top excited about that, but, but if it's blocked, do we get angry, just like Jonah? And then what about the eternal souls 
of our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers? Does it even engage our emotions in the same sort of way? Well, the word shines a light on our heart and our emotions reveal what's going on underneath. Well, the third aspect of the gospel I want to point out is that the gospel arms us with the very most needed power on planet Earth today. Now, if you had all the power and all the capability on Earth, how would you use it? How would you use it? And if you're, if you're like me, you're watching the news these last several weeks, uh, and you're thinking about that war in Ukraine, right? Um, yeah, I would stop that war in Ukraine right away. Stop those atrocities. Uh, that would be a good thing. And some of you are thinking, I'm going to go further. I'm going to stop poverty. I'm going to stop, you know, world hunger and all sorts of violence. And that's great. Some of you are thinking way outside of the box, outside of the box thinkers. You're thinking, I'm going to bring back all of those extinct species, right? Yeah, yeah. And then my imagination goes again, and I begin to think, that's probably a good thing. But, you know, traffic is really bad here in Orlando, so we got to do something with those dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, right. These are all good things. But the solution to all of our problems it lies in this good news, the gospel of Jesus. It lies in the good news. Why is that? Because everyone's deepest and most critical need is to be restored in their relationship with their creator, God. Right? Everything that we can think of that's wrong with the world today stems from the fact that our relationship with God was severed from the very beginning. And so when Adam and Eve, when they chose to rebel against God and break his command, guess what? They broke everything. They broke everything. War, addiction, abuse, grief, death, loss, all of this. It comes from a broken relationship with God from sin. And so when we think back to this war and we think of Vladimir Putin yeah, he needs to stop the aggression. That would be great. But he needs something even more. Just like the Apostle Paul, he needs to encounter the risen Lord. He needs to fall on the mercy and the grace of Christ. He needs to be restored in relationship with, in, with the one whose image he's made in, with his creator, God. And our passage is saying that the gospel is the power to accomplish this task. There's no other power on planet Earth that can restore our relationship with God, and the gospel accomplishes this how? It gives us what we desperately need, what we need the most, and that is righteousness. We need righteousness, and why is that? Well, God is a righteous and holy God in order for us to be restored in our relationship with him, we have to be righteous as well. But here's the bad news. Paul's going to say this two chapters later in Romans chapter 3. He's going to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's also going to say this, that there is none righteous, no, not even one, not me, not you. And so we have a righteousness Problem. We need to be righteous. And our scripture is saying that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, and it does so in the person and in the work 
of our Savior Jesus. Who he is and what he has done. Who is he? He is the righteous one. He is the one who is born yet without sin. None of humanity can make this claim. And then what has he done? He has lived the perfect life, the life that you and I could not live. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this is a very important scripture for us because it really reveals to us the nuts and the bolts of the gospel. And what, what I mean is how does the gospel work? How does a righteous God justify the unrighteous? Well, it works like this. Christ, who is the sinless one, he takes our sin, he pays the penalty on the cross for our sin. He does not receive mercy, but then he gives us grace. He gives us his perfect righteousness. So when God looks at us, he sees us as perfectly righteous. Now, Martin Luther, you guys know Martin Luther, he, um, he understood this aspect of God. He understood that you know, if I am to be in relationship with God, um, I have to be righteous because he is righteous. And so, you know what he tried to do? He tried to do right things. He tried to become righteous. And what happened? As he tried more and more to become righteous, what did he find out? He found out that he was far from righteous and he would never get there. And he was totally frustrated and vexed. And then when he came to Romans chapter 1, the passage that we're looking at, and he saw that righteousness is by faith, it blew his mind. It blew his mind. It changed everything for Martin Luther, and it started what we know as the Reformation, that we are justified by faith through grace, not of works. Righteousness is not something that we achieve by doing. It's something that we receive by faith. That's the good news. That's what we call grace. And you may be here this morning thinking, wow, this is great. This is great. I've got neighbors, friends. Uh, they need to hear this. They have not heard this good news. But what about me? I've, I've been following Christ for many years. Um, and I would say this. The gospel, the good news is for the found. The gospel is for the found as well. And I'm going to remind you of verse 15 where Paul says, I was eager to preach to you who are in Rome. Who is that? That's the Roman church. That are pe those are people who are following Christ. Because you see, we who are still following Christ, we need the gospel just as much. We need it every day. And there's so many reasons I could give you why we need the gospel but I'm gonna make a deal with you. I'm gonna give you one today. I'm gonna make a deal with you, okay? There's this big thing coming next, next week, okay? And, and, yeah. So if you invite me back, we're gonna, we're gonna spend time over and over counting all the numerous ways the gospel is for us who are following Christ as well. Let me give you one. Remember Martin Luther. It's the same thing for us even after we come to follow Christ, right? We want to fall back on our performance. We want to relate to God based on what we do, and we seem to think that if we sin, he loves us 
and accepts us just a little bit less. And that's our mentality. But no, the gospel doesn't say it that way. The gospel says that we receive it by faith. We don't achieve it by doing. And so we need this very same gospel over and over again to get that performance mindset out of our mind, to break that performance mindset. God is not looking at our performance. He is looking at Christ's performance. And thank the Lord for that. Well, if you're in Christ this morning, if you've received him by faith, you may not know it, but you have in your possession this greatest power, this greatest need for the earth today. And it ought to be changing your emotions and your motivations, and it's been given to you for the very purpose to give to others in your life. And so I'm going to remind you of those three practical takeaways. Get engaged, get inviting, and get equipped. And I'm going to give you a fourth one. Get meditating. Get meditating on these truths, these great gospel truths. Why? So that your heart will become enthralled with the beauty of Christ, who he is, what he has done. And so all your activity in your Christian walk will then flow from beauty rather than duty. And if you're here this morning and you have yet to follow Christ, I want to encourage you in this very same way that you cannot earn your way to God. There's not enough good that you can do to change the fact that you need righteousness, but you can receive righteousness by faith in Christ, who he is, what he has done for you. And so I invite you this morning, trust Christ. Trust this Christ, this type of Savior who gave his life for you so that you could have eternal life. Would you pray with me? Mighty God, Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all of our praise. And Father, when we look at the cross of Christ, we see horrible things and beautiful things at the same time. We see the horror of a man who is perfectly righteous, perfectly innocent, being nailed to a cross, shedding his blood for our sins, and we see the beauty of Christ's love that he would lay down his life for us who are not seeking him, who are enemies of God, and we fall down and worship this beautiful Savior. I pray you would capture all of our hearts this morning by this man Jesus, what he has done the God-man. Let us worship him in our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.